I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the team of gardening advisors based here at Wisley in Surrey. As regular listeners will know, in this podcast we bring you features exploring every aspect of gardening today, plus practical seasonal advice from RHS experts throughout the horticultural year. Coming up in this summer edition, podcast regular Matthew Pottage, who became Wisley's youngest ever curator in April, takes us on a tour of the garden. He reveals favourite summer plants and discusses his plans for the future. RHS advisors tackle some of your gardening questions and, as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. Let's join my colleagues as they discuss some of the inquiries they've received recently. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt and I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello, I'm Helen Bostock and I'm Senior Horticultural Advisor. My name's Hayley Jones and I'm an entomologist. So this one's from S. Godfrey in Surrey. I have a pond without a pump. Which plants will aerate the water best and how do I get rid of all the green algae? Mm, Well, I think, first of all, um, unless this pond has fish in it, there really is no essential requirement to have a pump. Um, Fish can churn up a lot of mess in the pond and um, do unfortunately mean that algae is more likely to be a problem. But fish-free ponds, which are great for wildlife shouldn't require that and as the pond settles um, there should become a balance and the water clarity ought to of its own accord as long as you're not changing a lot of the water it should become nice and clear. If algae does become a problem which it can often do especially in that first year of a new pond then I would suggest that first of all just planting a good range of um, aquatic plants so a good garden centre that has a pond plant section they're going to be offering a nice range of plants that you can either put into the pond that are just free floating they'll sit below the water surface they might be termed oxygenators we have a list on the RHS website of um, ones which are rather invasive and should be avoided also then look for things that might what we call be emergent plants these will poke up through the water surface things like uh, water irises they're going to be quite attractive and then you've got the plants which actually sit literally on the surface not above not below and the classic ones there are going to be your water lilies so for whatever size of pond this is I think there's going to be a good nice range of plants there to choose from with all those plants and without the fish algae should settle down and not be a big problem 
cover of the water surface that you get, particularly as water lilies start to unfurl their leaves and, and cast a little bit of shade into the water, does mean that that will, will sort itself. Yeah, I just wonder, is there any sort of quick measures that people can do? Because algae does cause people a lot of concern, doesn't it? Mm. Yes, um, it can very quickly look like a pea soup. And I suppose this goes back to the reason of why uh, try and control it because you haven't got a pump. Well, a lot of people... um, if they're having a lot of problems, might consider putting in a filter tank. So they pump the water from the pond, it goes into the tank. It's got all these squidgy layers of uh, basically like sponge-like materials, and that helps to filter out that algal material, and then it puts it back into the pond. Sometimes as well, they'll have a UV filter. So if you're looking for kind of a a complete engineered solution, um, that is still possible. So, okay, Mr. Godfrey doesn't want to do that, but that's another option for other people. Um, Of course, popular thing um, is barley straw. Um, Barley straw is found to be excellent at reducing algae in a very natural way it doesn't harm wildlife in your pond or affect your plants and you can either buy um, barley straw pads from uh, again from a good uh, garden center and you just at the start of a grain season the earlier the better probably in February March if you can but float these in in your your pond if your pond's rather small and you don't have space for a a pad then um, these days you can buy barley uh, straw extract which is just a liquid that can be put in and that too is a really quick fix that should help for that season to to clear up any algae problems. Uh, Mrs Jones has emailed in what edibles can I grow that are also insect friendly and for beneficial insects too? Well we're on hand with two insect specialists here from the team so I'm glad that uh, they can answer this one too. So Hayley what do you think? Well Straight up, anything that has flowers that need pollinating will probably be good for pollinating insects. So that could be um, beans, strawberries, and also fruit. Um, It's a really good idea to have um, a tree if you've got the space for it. Something like an apple tree is a big space and lots of habitat for different insects to live in, as well as providing the blossom for the pollinating insects. If you don't mind having some plants going over, going to seed, um, a good example is to leave some, uh, a few of your carrots to, for the next year because there's some butterflies that really like the flowers of carrots as well. And I think in a vegetable area, of course, it's really productive. So we don't want to sort of allow too much space for things that we can't be eating. But that's where herbs really come in. And essentially pretty much any herb you can think of whether it be from chives through to parsley or um, oregano um, these will naturally go to flower at some point during the summer and they are absolutely loved by both bees and butterflies so that's a really nice way to just add in um, some easy um, sort of beneficial um, insect friendly friendly plants the other thing that is is worth thinking about is um some of the plants which we might use in a productive area, but actually not for not for eating directly, but for improving the soil, raising fertility levels. So we've got something like green manures. And in that, um, if there's one plant I would strongly recommend people have a go at planting, it's Phacelia. It's called Phacelia tanacetifolia, and it's a 
lovely flowering plant it's got these sort of lavender blue flowers that um, flower over a really long period they sort of spiral around a bit its common name is scorpion plant and they just keep flowering in succession one after another and the bees will go mad for this a green manure for those of you not familiar with that term this is simply a plant that we grow with the idea of ultimately turning the bulk of the the green matter from the plant back into the soil so digging it in like a soil improver so we get the best of both worlds we get the benefit of the soil improvement for our vegetable plots but the the bees in particular will get the benefit of the flowers one of the things that she also comments on is that she really is only interested in the, the beneficial insects. Um, how do we sort of think about that and how can we actually manage to get that balance between good and bad insects? And is there such a thing, perhaps? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult question because the um, lots of insects perform different functions in the ecosystem that we need, but a lot of them eat our plants that we obviously don't want them to eat so if you enjoy the large white butterfly then you might grow some cabbages but there might not be much cabbage left at the end for you to eat Um, a good example might be to um, plant some nasturtiums alongside your cabbages and they can be like a bit of a sacrificial plant and hopefully you can encourage the caterpillars and therefore get to see the lovely butterflies uh, without your cabbages being completely devoured of course Hayley the lovely thing about nasturtiums is that the flowers are excellent in salads they're edible and they've got a real peppery taste to them so um, although we might think of them as sacrificial actually you're still going to get something from them So we've got an email come in from um, Mr. Wood this time and he says the ends of some of my tomato fruit have gone black. They are growing in containers in my greenhouse. What can I do to prevent this spreading? So this this sounds rather worrying. Black ends to your tomatoes. Um, Lee, have you come across this? So what I'm actually wondering is whether it's related to blossom end rot. So obviously the bottom of the fruit is where the blossom would have been before it uh, dropped off and the fruit formed. And that base section becomes hard and then blackens. Um, Often it's related to growing conditions. So um, if you don't get the water very even, if you get the nutrition wrong, then you might start to see this problem. So nutrition, it's a funny thing with tomatoes. We all know we should all get out there. We should go out with our liquid tomato food and we should feed and feed and feed. The only caveat is we actually need to feed what it's, as it says on the instructions, and it's possible to be far too heavy handed and give too much. And then you also start to get all sorts of leaf and tomato problems coming up because you've been too generous. And by adding some nutrients, you lock up other nutrients. So you start to create this process of imbalance. Um, Often, if you can just get things back down to being more even, so keeping um, evenly moist, so not too wet, not too dry. Um, As the tomato plants start to get really established in their grow bags, you might need to check them twice a day because they're drying out quicker on hot days. So morning and evening checking. And then, yeah, stick to the instructions on the bottle. doesn't really matter what you feed. It can be a container food or a specific tomato food. Most of them will have instructions for fruit crops um, on there. So whether it says for fruiting or for tomatoes, use this and it should be fine. So this sounds like good news for Mr Wood, that it's not 
um, a nasty disease like tomato blight. This this is actually something that can be corrected with good watering and good feeding. Great. This question's come in from L Barrett from Chingford in London. Um, I've been given two bottle brush trees in pots. I have a north-facing London garden on clay. Can I plant them in the ground or do I have to keep them in pots? What special care do they need and do they need protecting from pests? So straight up, there's no specific pests of bottle brush that you have to worry about. Uh, We do get a couple of inquiries about tortrix moth affecting them, uh, which is a tiny caterpillar that binds leaves together with silk threads. And that's just a case of keeping an eye out for it and pinching those leaves off and getting rid of the caterpillars if you see any activity. So the the next thing is, well, can they grow these wonderful plants? Obviously, um, bottle brushes, they have these leaves that uh, stick straight out from the stem, but um, making them look a little bit like the sort of brushes you would use to clean a bottle. And the flowers even more are fluffy, but very similar in their sort of outward um, structure. Um, I'm often in very bright colours, so reds and um, magentas, and there's a nice sort of yellow one as well. Now... They are borderline tender, but um, Mr. Barrett comes from London. So uh, the advantage of that is it it is that much warmer in that area. And certainly when you you go through the suburbs of London and quite a few of the the cities around the country, you'll see them growing fairly successfully outside. Um, So my temptation immediately would be because of where he lives, do put it in the ground. But if you're out in the colder parts of the country, countryside, then growing in a pot, putting into a conservatory or a frost-free greenhouse for the winter and then bringing back out in the end of May is probably the best way forward. Yeah, I see that they've got a north-facing garden. Um, I think being in London, that protection is fantastic. Some gardeners might find that that north-facing aspect just has rather low light levels for some of these sun-loving plants like bottle brush. Um, so if if you do have a, a sunny a sunny spot um, that that you could choose, do that because you're much more likely to see those fantastic flowers that are so unique to this plant. Next question. This time it's from uh, one of our members from Nottinghamshire and they said, I would like to grow potatoes for Christmas. Gosh, (laughs) thinking about Christmas already. Um, How and when do I go about getting a good crop? It's one of those things, although it's quite early, uh, it is time to start thinking about it because really by the end of August, September, they need to be planted and you're going to need some early potatoes. Something like Charlotte works quite well for this. And you're going to need a, a container, um, probably about 18 inches wide or about um, 45 centimetres. Uh, and you're only going to need up one or, you know, maximum two if you're really squeezing them in potatoes to put in there. Then you're going to need to have somewhere to grow them. You'll probably... Uh, know well that potatoes get hit by frost and they blacken and die the growth dies back so yes initially you can plant them in the pot start them off on a very sunny patio good spot outside but then to carry on growing they're going to need to go into really a polytunnel a frost-free greenhouse a cool conservatory I think you could get away with but it doesn't want to be one that gets hot in the the um, the daytime keep watering keep feeding because you want really as much growth and as much energy going back down into those tubers and of course the problem that we get as we get 
out of October into November towards Christmas, you'll be finding that the light levels go down. So we're giving them quite a long growing period, but the the growing initially is going to be very vigorous and then slow down. So um, anything you can do to to keep those conditions more ideal, as I've described, will make it more likely that you start to get some tubers forming. They're not going to be the biggest potatoes you've ever found, but the advantage is that hopefully at your chosen moment, just before Christmas in your preparation, you can go and then empty the pot and find some fresh new potatoes that hopefully only need a light little rub and they'll be ready for cooking. I think that'll earn you a lot of brownie points at the uh, family table on Christmas Day if you can say, ta-da, here's some we've grown ourselves. (laughs) Thank you, Lee. Um, I think our next question is one that we really need to get Hayley's thoughts on this. So, Hayley, the question is, I have heard the box tree caterpillar can devastate box. I have a number of box topiaries in my garden. What do I need to do to prevent it from causing damage? So first of all, tell us what's box tree caterpillar all about. So the box tree caterpillar um, is a species of moth that originally came from Asia and it invaded Europe in about 2007 and has slowly spread throughout Europe. And in 2011, it started to be spotted in the UK. And over the past couple of years, we've been getting more and more reports of this throughout the UK, especially in areas of southwest London and parts of Essex and Berkshire. So last year, we had an awful lot of records of this. It's the populations really seem to be getting going. Not so many this year, but no doubt that the caterpillar will continue to spread a bit. There's not much you can do to prevent the uh, the caterpillar arriving in your garden as the adult moths are quite good flyers but the key really is to be vigilant once the caterpillars get up to a big size they can consume your box plants very quickly and uh, and can be quite hard to control so if you can inspect your topiaries regularly you're looking out for um, pale yellow eggs laid in sheets on the undersides of the leaves um, and then small green caterpillars which eventually turn into slightly bigger caterpillars that are green with black stripes down the side If you can spot them at this early stage and remove them by hand, you can head the problem off. Uh, Once they get bigger and their numbers get high, there are a few pesticides that you can use, particularly those containing pyrethrum, deltamethrin or lambda cyhalothrin. And there's actually a new product that's come out recently, which is a pheromone trap. Um, So this contains the the kind of the the scent that the female moths give off. And so the male moths will be attracted to it and you'll find them inside the trap. So this isn't very helpful for control because it only captures the males, but it might be helpful if you haven't got any moths yet, but you suspect they're in the area. It will be a way for you to to know that they're around before they hopefully manage to get established on your plants. Now, I get the odd question where people go, I've seen these caterpillars. They're on my nasturtiums. What should I do? Um, What do we think about that? So the box tree caterpillar only affects box. It's very specific. And uh, there's lots of other green and green and black caterpillars that can affect other things. On nasturtiums, um, it's likely to be cabbage caterpillars, either from the cabbage moth or the large white butterfly. So if you see green and black caterpillars on any other plant, it's not the box tree caterpillar. So at least that's some comfort, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) The RHS Gardening Advice Team. 
As well as expert advice, another benefit of membership is free entry to all four RHS gardens, plus the opportunity to buy priority tickets for RHS flower shows and events. You can read more about the benefits of becoming a member on our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash join. Here's a few of the attraction events available to all members and non-members in the next few weeks. Chaucer comes to Yorkshire on the 28th of July. Join us at the RHS Garden Harlow Car as a cast of just five actors present every one of Geoffrey Chaucer's timeless Canterbury tales in just under two hours. £12.50 adults, £9.50 children. Summer holiday activities kick off at Hyde Hall on the 25th of July. Explore our space station and all things galactic. There'll be lots of interesting activities, discoveries and fascinating facts to learn and take part in, free with normal garden entry. Join us at RHS Garden Rosemore for the Birds in the Garden on the 6th of August, a joint event with the RSPB held in the Plant Centre. Find out what you can do to attract birds to your garden. Admission is free. We'll be sharing the treasures of Wisley Lindley Library on the 2nd of August between 2pm and 4pm. Special books from the collections will be brought out for display. Drop in and chat to our librarians. This session's speciality will be books on fruit and vegetables. Full details of all events and many more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash events search. Now, time to go outside to have a stroll around the stunning summer displays, beds and borders with Wisley creator Matthew Pottage. Dubbed the Whisk Kid of Wisley by the Daily Telegraph, Matthew Pottage became the youngest ever garden creator this spring when he was appointed the head role aged just 29. We asked Matthew why Wisley is so special to him, especially in summer, and to hear some of his plans for the future of the garden. My name is Matthew Pottage and I'm the curator here at RHS Garden Wisley. Well, so, new role, six months into it, just over now. Um, I don't know where the time goes. It's been very, very busy. It's very, very exciting. I still have to pinch myself to think, actually, I'm doing this job for the RHS. Uh, You know, looking after Wisley is such a fabulous opportunity and it's something that is you know it's so special to me I've loved Wisley Garden and its plant collections for for over 10 years Uh, and before that as well just as a garden visitor and to be actually leading the team working with the team at a time of what is a lot of exciting change for the wider RHS but also that has implications for Wisley is is something so special And there's a few changes and a few kind of exciting things in the pipeline which I'll talk to you about uh, this afternoon. And that's, one is our key investment programme. So that's future-proofing, the work of the RHS, its gardens for future visitors, for expanding what we do and for that wider offer to the garden visitors. And there's two quite major things that people will see as a difference at Wisley. So first of all, to pick on two of the infrastructure changes, Uh, Number one is a new front of house, so a new arrival at Wisley. Uh, That will be coupled with a new catering facility, a new shop and a new plant centre. And both of those retail outlets will be bigger and better than we have currently. So a lot more space and a lot more shopping for plants. So I'm going to have to keep out of there or I'll have absolutely no money left to feed myself. But anyway, aside from those exciting retail opportunities... um, We'll have just a whole new experience of how you enter the garden. So space, bigger paths, a bigger welcome and a clearer direction as currently you come in on very small paths through a very tight pinch point. And on a busy Sunday morning, you know, that's terribly overcrowded. There's not enough toilets. The coffee shop can't cope. The shop gets very overcrowded. And if you've come to us on a really busy day, you'll know what that's like. And sometimes you just feel like you don't want to stop and browse because it's so busy. 
and part of our retail work and part of the enterprise of the RHS is really important you know we are a charity we're not government funded so it is all important that we can raise money at these retail outlets so when you're, you've got a new entrance it's actually coming in on seven acres where the grass borders currently are so if you know the gardens well you'll be able to envisage that we're planting a big colonnade of trees that you walk in through possibly looking at flowering cherries at the moment that's probably our preferred favorite so you'll have a massive like a big green signpost of where you come in that reaches out to the car park right up to the glass ticketing entrance so you'll see through into the garden and then another stretch of cherries that you walk under so lovely green summer shade a real hit of color in the spring and then obviously the autumn color and we're working with Christopher Bradley Hole on a lot of this landscape uh, layout you know the path networks the vistas the visitor flow is so important uh, we welcome over a million visitors to Wisley a year now so it is very important people can get around the site and actually discover the gardens now you may think okay well what happens to the current plant centre and shop and that's where it gets even more exciting because they are screening all the east face of the laboratory the big old building that's so beautiful and they'll be demolished and cleared away and for the first time you'll actually have a view of that aspect of the lab which hasn't been visible since probably the early 60s we think when those buildings went up and then another big piece of work so that's going to be a big disruptive piece of building work as in it's going to be all hoarded off but there's going to be mess there's going to be noise because we'll be demolishing Aberconway House which is where the library is so once that is through a lot of that major work will start next year in 2017 very early in 2017 and once we're through the main part of that we'll start looking at the hilltop and that is a new laboratory facility that will house a lot of our science staff, the herbarium, the botanists, the library and events and education. So it'll be able to increase all those offers that we currently have. Our current learning centre is absolutely booked to capacity. The Hillside Event Centre is tired now. You know, it was once a garden building. It's done really well, but it's time to upgrade. And the botanists and the entomologists and the pathologists, all our science team, are bursting at the seams in that old laboratory building. And that new beautiful building, which has been designed by Wilkinson Eyre, will sit at the top of the hill where the old glass houses used to be. Uh, and again, what's the, what's the outcome of that with the old laboratory building? That will free up space for the public and our visitors to be able to go in and visit the lab as maybe an exhibition space, a gallery space, we're still working on that. Uh, so one half of that lower level will be accessible. It's got lots of, if you actually, it's a very clever building. If you look from a distance, it straddles lots of levels. So actually inside, it's this whole system of staircases, tight corridors, more steps, more steps. But one end of it is quite level. So it's that end we're looking at opening. So, you know, it'd be good for disabled access too. So, so, you know, we can show off some of our library collections, botanical artwork, whatever. Uh, and it's just a bit of a mag you know, magical thing to be able to go in a Wisley lab. And then, I hope you're keeping up with this, uh, more, more, more. So on the hilltop, new laboratory building sitting up there. And we're going to refresh the landscape around that. So you may know there's a big tractor yard up there at the moment with lots of utilities and our kind of back of house workings. We're going to be pushing all those back of house workings to the periphery of the garden. So the tractor sheds, the tool stores, the propagation glass houses, we're stripping all of that away. So when you're walking through the garden, you don't suddenly come across a no public access fence or a big messy old yard with loads of tractors in. 
So, when all of that is cleared around there, that gives us space for three new gardens and they will really tie the landscape together. So I'm going to start near Battleston Hill, if you can follow this. Just envisage Battleston Hill, take away that big machinery yard, and we're going to have a new garden there for pollinate, to showcase plants for pollinators, biodiversity, gardens as a nature reserve, if you like. So we're still working this up, exactly what it's going to look like, and that will be a garden to really help bolster our science strategy of working with pollinators and, and insects in the garden. In front of the building we're going to have a garden showcasing health and well-being so very much tying into another element of our science strategy and that's health, happiness and horticulture and that's about gardening being good for mental well-being, being good for the actual you know the body and mind. So again that's in its early stages but we're looking at that as being the, the main front garden of that building. And then to the west, where the orchards are, and moving out into the orchard space will be a new kitchen garden. And that will showcase fruit, veg and herb, essentially. It will replace the three little model gardens we have currently. So they are quite small offers, and they are segregated into fruit, veg and herb. And that, you know, they were laid out in the 50s, they've done a great job for us, and they still continue to be popular with the public. But we really want to expand that offer. So when you're coming here to see edible plants, it will be one big wow kitchen garden. And also to, to open up the orchard, a lot of people don't go out there. It's kind of hedged off partly because of the propagation glass houses, the fruit tractor sheds shield some of it and who knew we had this massive orchard over 700 cultivars of apples we've got a vineyard out there pear and plum collection so you know that is a really exciting time to pull that landscape together now they are our main key investment projects at Wisley that we're working on on top of that we have our five-year horticultural plan and that's put together by me and the gardens team and it's something I've been working on over the last six months and that's just keeping momentum going in all the other garden areas too. So you can, you can look forward to kind of lots of light touches which may have a big impact such as replacing furniture in one area where there's rotten benches or the benches aren't very good or replanting, refreshing, changing. So to give you a specific example there, the heather garden We've got the National Collection of Heathers at Wisley and that heather garden has been at the end of the Pine Eaton for some 20 years now and those heathers are, they're past their best, let's be honest. They're woody, they're tired, so we're looking at repropagating that whole collection and that'll be this late summer, autumn time and it's a time to refresh that. They're currently in island beds, patchwork quilt, interplanted with dwarf conifers. Yes, I like my conifers but that does look of its time. So it's time to do something new, exciting and fresh down there. And actually what I'm looking forward to is the team pulling together some really interesting companion plantings. So we know we can put dwarf conifers with heathers and it's been done and it's not that exciting anymore. You know, and part of our uh, remit as the RHS is to get people inspired and excited by gardening. So watch that space. Heathers aren't fashionable at the moment. They're not liked by everybody. Uh, and it's really up to us to, you know, to give them hopefully a new lease of life. But there are exciting things going on throughout the garden, maybe with tree carvings or just better path surfaces, new directional signage. So you will notice bit by bit, you know, this whole reinvigoration of areas. And you know what? Times change and it's time for a bit of a refresh. So lots going on. And you can imagine uh, 
that's a lot of dynamic change. That's a lot for the team to be thinking, what can we plan? When can we do these projects? What can we bite off? And what, you know, what can we actually cope with alongside our day-to-day maintenance? So a really exciting new chapter at Wisley. And I hope you all continue to visit us frequently and, and you know, be part of this change with us. Curator of the RHS Garden Wisley, Matthew Pottage. I'm Tony Dixon, and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Let's hear about some of the key jobs you can be tackling in your garden this month. I'm Jim Arbery, a horticultural specialist, particularly with sort of fruit, veg and trials, sort of edibles, based at Wisley. Yeah, well, there's still plenty to be done in the vegetable garden. Obviously, we're getting into the harvesting period, so that's good with various things, peas, beans, potatoes, carrots, various things that will be being harvested. But also, there's still time to sow certain crops as well. And uh, it's not too late now. You can still sow dwarf beans and also climbing French beans. They're actually quite useful because that then gives you a crop later in towards September when other beans would be sort of coming to an end. So it's very useful to sow. But that's sort of early July, really. So sowing those now. You can sow early carrots, not main season carrots. There's not enough season left for them to mature. But you can sow early carrots now. Beetroot also can be um, sown for successional sowings. You may already have got some, but you can sow some more. And these various salad leaves, so particularly the sort of salad mixes, you can do repeat sowings of those. So it's fine to sow those. And also for your salad, um, radishes, which are always very quick and would be fine sown at this time of year. In fact, in July or even perhaps later than that. So there's quite a bit you can sow. There are also some things to get on with planting, which if you already raised the plants you can use, or otherwise could be bought, which are some of the sort of brassicas like sprouting broccoli, Brussels sprouts, autumn and winter cabbages, late cauliflowers and kale, and also leeks. But if you've not sown those, then it's really the sort of thing you'd, you'd buy a few plants rather than sowing them, but it's the time to plant them. Leeks, I always think, follow up quite well to early potatoes, which would be lifted by July, most of them perhaps in June and early July. And also with potatoes, you need to look out for symptoms of blight at this time of year. Now that would be sort of brown mottling and dying back of the stems. If that happens, then you need to cut away the horn and destroy it. The tubers should then still be fine. But the early potatoes, which are finished, you can follow on and plant leeks in the ground where the potatoes were. So usefully got a space there from having the uh, potatoes. But do look out for blight. This year has been um, cool, sort of wet, overcast. Everything's very leafy and uh, more prone to some of the diseases, such in the case of potatoes with the blight. Also, because you've got a lot of leafy growth, you might need to make sure you're supporting things. Broad beans, if they're not already finished, you know, they often need support so they don't flop over. And also potatoes can flop over onto other plants nearby because they've got, particularly this year, very tall horn. So having a sort of some canes and strings along the side of them where they're next to another vegetable crop can be useful so they don't flop over them. So they're all things to be getting on with, along with the uh, weeding, which is inevitable under this wet weather. But you just have to keep on top of that. Remember, you can find out more information on all aspects of gardening techniques on the advice pages of our website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. So that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. 
For now, from me, Tony Dickerson, and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.